I would also like to start out by thanking um, the Montana Historical Society, um, as well as Dr. Thompson for a fascinating talk. I found myself looking up stuff hurriedly on my phone as you were talking because I wanted to know more. Uh, so I'll definitely be hopeful, looking forward to the book. Um, I'm going to start out by taking us a bit away from Montana, though I promise by the end we will end up back firmly in this state. Um, although I'm only taking us to Idaho, and Idaho and Montana used to be the same place, uh, and then a little bit to Utah, so it's not too far afield. So on the morning of January 23rd, 1863, a Union general who had been born in County Kerry, Ireland, led a force of 200 California soldiers to the banks of Bear River. In camp, there were over 450 Shoshone Indians. Thick willow trees shrouded the river. Their branches were mixed with the tufts of cattails. The weather that day was bitterly cold. The soldiers likely felt that cold in the ache in their fingers and in the wet clothes that froze to their bodies when General Connor ordered them to attack. Now, it's difficult to know exactly what happened next. Um, most historians have followed the oral histories of the Perry family. Um, but there's been some work done actually by a Utah State master student that suggests that those memories only represent sort of one part of the tribal memory um, and that more work needs to be done looking at other Shoshone family oral histories. According to the oral histories that have been taken from the Perry family, however, the American soldiers shot women and children indiscriminately. The soldiers also likely killed infants by throwing them against rocks. Stories circulated after the massacre about a 15-year-old boy who laid down among the dead with his grandmother in hopes that the soldiers would not find them among the mutilated corpses. Other Shoshones likely fled to the river. In one story, a woman, forced to choose between being discovered and her young child, let the baby drown in the icy waters. And um, what we have here is sort of a picture of where the Bear Massacre uh, Massacre River, Bear River Massacre took place. Um, if you know your Idaho slash uh, Utah geography, here's the town of Pocatello, which is about, oh, a three and a half, four hour drive, depending on how fast you're going from Bozeman. Um, and then on this map, Pocatello is right here. So the massacre takes place south of Pocatello, sort of near the Utah border. Um, and there is Salt Lake City. And then um, here, so here we have a picture of the Bear River Massacre site today. Um, this here is farmland. There has been an attempt to make this a national historic site. Um, the men and women who own the farmland, though, um, have um, tried to prevent the creation of that site out of worries of what that would mean for the value of their farmland and the possibility that they'd have to give some of it up to create um, the historic site or maybe even um, something like a museum to be placed there. And then finally, um, this is Yegar to Timbimbu, um, and he was the 15-year-old boy who laid it down among the dead with his grandmother in hopes that they would not be found. One of the other survivors of the massacre is a two-year-old boy named Bishop uh, Timbimbu, who is Yegar's brother. His surviving family members found him among the massacred bodies. He had been wounded several times. And according to one historian, he'd managed to still hold onto the bowl of frozen pine nut gravy that had been holding onto when the massacre had begun. After the massacre, he was adopted by a white Mormon man named Amos Warner, who gave him the name Frank. And it was ultimately the Warner family who would raise him. Frank then grew up in a community that had greeted the news of the massacre that had killed his mother as, quote, an intervention of the Almighty. He never became completely reconciled to what happened to his community at Bear River. At least one of his grandchildren may remembered his shoulder as being permanently gnarled with scars. And here we have a picture of Frank Warner at the site of the Bear River Massacre. Um, and the way that this uh, picture is always captioned 
is this is the site he says where he last saw his mother alive and so he's standing sort of I don't there's no date on this picture it was given by the family afterwards I'm not sure exactly when it took place but he's a middle-aged man remembering back to when he was two years old in spite of the trauma that Warner had experienced as a child he eventually embraced the Mormon church he served several missions for the church including one to the Fort Peck Indian Reservation in 1914 like other Mormon missionaries, Warner believed that Joseph Smith's <coughs> discovery of the Book of Mormon had reopened the heavens, allowing... I'm not sure exactly what happened there or why my phone started recording me, but at least it was my phone and not one of yours. <laughs> um, so he eventually served several missions for the Mormon church. Um, like other Mormon missionaries, sorry, I'm trying to find my spot, Warner believed that Joseph Smith's discovery of the Book of Mormon had reopened the heavens allowing God to be active again in the world. In the 19th century, Mormons anointed the sick, raised the dead, and received divine messages. Warner and other native converts to Mormonism partook in this outpouring of the miraculous. In his diary, Warner recorded speaking to a woman from Fort Peck who had dreamed that she'd begun to enter into, quote, a place of darkness, end quote, but was prevented from completely doing so by an unknown force. While she was standing there, she saw angels coming down from the skies, Warner interpreted her dream as, quote, a representation of the power of God and of the gospel, end quote. <clears throat> he believed that although she had begun to transgress from his laws, her dream meant that God would not allow her to completely <coughs> abandon the church. The two-year-old boy with pine nut gravy was not the only massacre survivor to convert to Mormonism. In 1873, the red-haired George Washington Hill, although he's probably not red-haired in this photo, baptized dozens of Shoshone living near Corinne, Utah, by the late 19th century, hundreds of Shoshone had joined the Mormon church. Their conversion was part of a larger Mormon interest in Native Americans. Throughout the 19th century, Mormons set up Indian farms in the Cache Valley, in Utah, on Cord Creek, and in other locations to encourage Native Americans to adopt white methods of farming. Many of the Native American men and women who lived in these communities adopted the Mormon faith. And here we have um, Mormons baptizing a member of the Shivwit Band of the Paiute Indians, and this likely took place somewhere in Utah. In this paper, I explore the reasons why Native Americans living in Utah and Montana converted to Mormonism. I, order, I argue that the Book of Mormon provided Native Americans with a sacred genealogy that some, although I should emphasize not all, um, and maybe not even most, found empowering. It offered followers the ability to heal the sick, seal the dead together in eternal families, and prophesy. For these individuals, Mormonism was a way to lay claim to a position of power and to improve the condition of their communities. In this paper, I'm going to focus on the Native Americans in Utah and Montana who accepted Mormonism and hopefully um, provide some of the reasons why they may have done so. So to help us fully understand this, I want to take a step back for a moment and explore how the Mormon interest in Native Americans um, developed. And much of that was fueled by the Book of Mormon. In the stories that he told about the faith's beginnings, Joseph Smith claimed to have received um, a vision telling him about the Book of Mormon first in 1823. Then he later unearthed it um, and claims to have unearthed a set of golden plates. And it's on these golden plates that you have the Book of Mormon. And the Book of Mormon is ultimately a story about a group of Israelites who traveled to the Americas around 600 BCE. 
According to the Book of Mormon, some of the descendants of these Israelites descend into debauchery, forgetting their divine heritage um, and becoming dark in skin. And according to early Mormon theology, although this is contested now, it's those people who have been cursed with dark skin who are then the ancestors of Native Americans. In the Book of Mormon, they're referred to constantly as the Lamanites. There's another group called the Nephites who sort of stick um, with their divine past, um, but they're eventually wiped out, and so all you have left are the Lamanites. In Mormon theology, um, God is eventually going to gather these people together in the last days into a single location, although they'll build a physical Zion. Um, according to Mormon theology, as these men and women remember their godly heritage, their skin will begin to physically lighten, um, and they'll become, quote, white and delightsome. Um, eventually that is changed to um, pure and delightsome, but in the early text in the 1830s it says white and delightsome. It's this divine story that fuels the interest of white Mormons and Native Americans. In 1830, uh, and here we have a picture, um, a painting of this mission, Parley P. Pratt, Zeba Peterson, Oliver Cowdery, and Peter Whitman travel to the Delaware and Shawnee Indians as missionaries. Their mission is ultimately unsuccessful, but it became the first of many Mormon missionary efforts among Indian communities in the United States and Canada. Many critics have, for obvious reasons, read the Book of Mormon as a racist text. Its association of whiteness and godliness is deeply embedded in physical bodies. When the American Israelites, who are at the center of the text, first transgress God's laws, he darkens their skin so that their more godly brethren will not find them attractive. Likewise, it is the loss of Indian characteristics that marks the redemption of Native Americans in early Mormon theology. Early Mormons believed that the skin color, facial features, and aspect of Native Americans would become more like white men as Indians accepted the gospel. And you get these fascinating stories all the way actually up until the 1970s um, with the Indian placement program of people talking about adopting Native American children and then their skin becoming physically lighter the longer that they live with the family. Um, that's largely been rejected, I should say, by, by contemporary Mormons. There are, however, other ways to read the text, and I'm going to preface this by saying I'm not sure that this particular literary scholar is correct, um, but Jared Hickman, um, who's a professor at Johns Hopkins, has argued that the Book of Mormon should actually be read as, quote, an Amerindian apocalypse. He argues that the Book of Mormon ultimately challenges American ideas about manifest destiny by suggesting that it is ultimately American Indians and not white settlers who will control the continent. Before Joseph Smith's death, Mormons found it difficult to carry out sustained missionary efforts among Native American communities. The violence they encountered in Missouri, Ohio, and Illinois forced them to continually desert their homes to create Zion anew. Smith's death, however, changed the position of Mormons. Brigham Young ultimately decided to move the Mormon community beyond the boundaries of the United States. Utah was then a part of Spanish territory. And in so doing, he brought them into Indian country. Mormon relationships with Native Americans were, of course, no less violent than those of other white settlers. Although Young encouraged his followers to treat Native Americans with respect, um, he ultimately believed it would be cheaper to feed Native Americans, was the way he put it, than to fight them. His advice was often disregarded by his own followers. The historian John S. Peterson has argued that some of Chief Blackhawk's rage against Mormon settlers stemmed from a harrowing stay he had in a Mormon fort where he was um, surrounded by the bodies of his dead family and friends. And the white Mormon settlers had ultimately hoped to send them back to the east um, to sell them to museums. But they ended up staying in the fort too long and their plans were uh, not followed out. Violence was endemic in 19th century Utah. 
And that's part of what, for me, makes native conversions to Mormonism so hard to understand. Throughout the 19th century, Ute Indians raided Mormon livestock and attacked Mormon communities. The willingness of white Mormons to purchase Indian children also sent the region's pre-existing slave trade spiraling out of control. In spite of this violence, white Mormons had some success in their missionary work. The Pavant chief, Kenosh, converted to Mormonism in the 1850s and sometimes preached in local wards. He even eventually married one of Young's adopted Native American children. Native Americans who converted to Mormonism participated in its sacred rituals and adopted some of its language concerning their history. Before 1890, over 230 Indians participated in a Mormon rite called the Endowment, in which they were anointed with oil before learning about the atonement of Christ and the creation of the universe. And the Endowment is what typically takes place in Mormon temples now. Uh, although for part of this history there isn't a Mormon temple, so it's taking place in the Endowment House. As part of the rite, they would have received, quote, the key words, signs, and tokens, end quote, that would be necessary for them to obtain their final exaltation. As the historian David Grua has pointed out, there are few native texts that allow us to know with any precision how Native Americans like Kenosh interpreted their conversion to Mormonism. As a result, the letters and diaries that Warner produced during his mission to Fort Peck are important for understanding how Native American Mormons understood their faith. They also provide us a window into the religious experience of um, people living on Fort Peck in the early 20th century. And so now that you sort of have a background of Mormon relationships with Native Americans, we're going to turn explicitly to Warner's mission to Fort Peck and spend the remainder of my time there. So Warner, um, and he, here's another picture of him, uh, was a call to a missionary to Fort Peck in 1914. It was not the first time that he'd been asked to serve as a missionary to other Native Americans. In the mid-1880s, he was called as a missionary to labor in Washakie, Utah, um, where many of the Shoshone converts to Mormonism had settled. He did not find his calling easy. He felt that the other missionaries treated him with, quote, contempt, refusing to give him enough money to clothe his wife Edna and their child. In a letter to the president of the LDS Church, he asked, quote, whether we as Lamanites have any rights among the Latter-day Saints, end quote. Edna had died just a few months earlier before his second mission to Fort Peck. The diary that Warner kept during this mission opened with a Mormon apostle giving him, quote, a fine blessing and promising that he would do a marvelous work among the Lamanites. Much of Warner's missionary work focused on the sacred history of American Indians. In a letter that he wrote three years later, he described the reaction of Native Americans living on Fort Peck to, quote, the beautiful things contained in the Book of Mormon. There is something in this book, he wrote, that appeals to them and seems to bring some kind of recollection to them of their forefathers, end quote. When he visited individual homes, he frequently carried copies of the Book of Mormon with him. On December 4, 1914, he visited the home of an Indian man named John Adams. And I should note, he never actually specifies what tribe people believe to, so it always just says, I went to this Lamanite's home. Um, one of the things that I hope to do is find out who these people were and something beyond their Lamanites living on Fort Peck, um, which is deeply unsatisfying uh, to only have that information about somebody. Using the Book of Mormon, he told Adams' family about, quote, their fallen condition and how the dark skin had come upon them. According to Warner, the family accepted his description of their status and agreed to read the Book of Mormon. And I find sort of Warner's adoption of this cursed language interesting, as well as his descriptions of the reactions of other people. Um, if someone were to come to my home and tell me that I was cursed, I'm not sure that I would have sort of the friendly reaction that he describes um, other Native Americans as having to his uh, telling them about their history. 
As I mentioned early, it's easy to read Warner's descriptions of the Book of Mormon as racist. The Book of Mormon clearly privileges whiteness. Warner, however, did not view Mormonism as a colonial import. Rather, he saw it as part of his Indian identity. He explicitly takes on the identity as a Lamanite and writes as a Lamanite. Throughout his writings are snippets of Native American culture and history that he believed proved the Book of Mormon's authenticity. In a letter that he wrote while on his mission to Fort Peck, Warner told of a local Indian myth in which a man called, quote, big liar, end quote, built a raft on which he put, quote, all kinds of animals, male and female, end quote. And there's a bit to unpack there with Moses being the big liar. Um, he told his readers that if anyone wanted to know the origins of these stories, they needed to consult the Book of Mormon. He believed that the Sioux and Assiniboine had held these traditions, quote, long before the white man set foot on the soil of this promised land. He saw his preaching as a kind of whispering in which Native Americans living in Montana would be reminded of the beliefs of their forefathers. Warner believed that the acceptance of the Book of Mormon would give Native Americans on Fort Peck and beyond great power. During his mission, he performed several healings. At one point, Warner entered the house of a mother whose son lay on a bed with, quote, the death stamped on his faith, end quote. He and the other missionaries decided to administer to the boy. One of Warner's companions, a white man, anointed the child with oil. At this point, Warner felt, quote, the power of God rest upon me in mighty power. He and the other missionaries rebuked the disease. Within a few hours, the boy was able to dress himself, and he wrote that a few days later he saw the boy skating. This spiritual power was important to Native converts to Mormonism. It provided them with a means for encountering the physical devastation they had experienced as a result of colonization, at the same moment that it provided them with a sacred history. Warner was not the only convert to Mormonism to accept faith healing. Nimrod Davis, an Assiniboine man who had attended the Carlisle Indian School and who lived on Fort Peck, healed a nine-year-old girl who suffered from what he called a leakage of the heart. As I argued earlier, Mormonism also provided Native American Mormons with a sacred lineage that placed them at the center of God's redemptive narrative. And I think that's one way to sort of look at why they're adopting this text. According to the Book of Mormon, God could not fulfill his promise to reclaim the earth as his own until various Native American tribes living in the United States had remembered their godly heritage and had been redeemed. Warner's second wife, Georgie, um, who we have a picture of here, and if you look closely, she's holding a picture of her husband. Um, in her hands. And she's originally from Parker, Idaho, um, so around that same general southern part of Idaho. Warner's second wife, Georgie, identified him as the mighty one, prophesied in 2 Nephi 3.24, who would, quote, bring to pass much restoration unto the house of Israel, end quote. She wrote excitedly of one of their neighbors who had just returned from a mission to England and who had sought her husband out to tell him there was no doubt that he was the man spoken of. She related that there were, quote, Lamanites in many places having wonderful visions of her husband. When he had visited Native Americans in Montana and Canada the winter previous, she explained, the chiefs had all exclaimed, quote, we know you, we saw you long ago. Warner saw the Book of Mormon as part of the larger unfolding of God's redemptive plan. He believed that Native Americans who quoted to Mormonism would undergo physical as well as spiritual changes. The Book of Mormon suggested that Native Americans had dark skins because their ancestors had sinned against God. Warner and other Mormons believed that this darkness was temporary. It could be expunged if they would adopt the white standards of cleanliness, farming, and domesticity. In a letter that he wrote to Liahona, a Mormon journal, Warner remarked upon the changes that he had seen since he had begun laboring on the reservation in 1914. Although it had been just two years, he could note, quote, with pleasure, their improvement in dress, manner, and their homes. 
They're learning to become more sanitary, he wrote at one point. Their stock is getting more numerous and their home comforts better supplied. They are beginning to live in a more modern style, not costly living, but more cleanly, end quote. The changes that Warner outlined among Montana's native communities were the same that white Mormons had hoped to inculcate among Native Amer or Shoshone, Utes, Paiutes in Utah and Idaho. It is difficult to tell how Warner's converts in Montana interpreted this aspect of his message, but there is evidence that they also saw Mormonism as a vehicle through which their people could be redeemed. In 1932, a few decades after Warner's mission to Fort Peck, Jack Galbraith, himself a Native American, himself a resident of Fort Peck, was invited to attend an event at the Cardston Temple for over 200 Indian students who had won a contest uh, for children from reservations in Montana. And Jack Galbraith goes through and gives a pretty extensive discussion um, of what these children would have experienced inside the temple. He says that as the children sat in the temple, they saw a mural of Christ giving a sa the sacrament to, quote, a repentant Lamanite. And when it was his turn to speak, he told them that he hoped that they would have, quote, the privilege of returning to the house of the Lord to receive the greatest prize that God had for his faithful sons and daughters, the prize of eternal life. According to another missionary who attended the service, these children began kissing their fingers when they saw the temple's baptismal font. Both men pointed, painted them as realizing the spiritual importance of the ceremony. And then after the ceremony was over, interestingly, um, the children were all given ice cream and cake. <laughs> it is possible to read Native converts as being complicit in their own colonization. It is important, however, to consider their, their conversion in the light of wider conversations taking place about ingenuity, citizenship, and the place of Native Americans in modern American society in the early 20th century. At this time, there was a group of progressive Indians, including the Dakota physician Charles Eastman, who sought to claim a space for Native Americans um, in the modern U.S. They did so by emphasizing the importance of education and adopting some of the rhetoric of American progressivism. For Native American converts to Mormonism, the Mormon faith could be used in a similar way. It provided them with a narrative in which they were at the center of God's redemptive plan, not white people. That narrative could possibly provide them with the space from which they could lay claim to a power that was otherwise not available to them. The stories that Frank Warner and Jack Galbraith told about Mormonism emphasized its ability to heal broken bodies and to provide Native American youth with a new sense of purpose and vigor. And of course, I want to note here, that there were other um, people living on Fort Peck, other people living in Fort Hall, who saw Mormonism as a colonial import and who rejected it completely and found their solace in Native American religions um, and in Christianity or other forms of Christianity. From our vantage point, the decision of these men to convert to Mormonism is a bit unexpected. Um, you don't expect a survivor of the Bear River Massacre to convert to Mormonism and then go to Fort Peck on a mission in the early 20th century. And most of us, I'm guessing, also see Mormonism as a white faith. And when we think of Mormon missionaries, we don't think of somebody like Frank Warner. We think of young white men on bikes going from house to house. But for Frank Warner, Jack Galbraith, and others, it was they saw themselves as embracing a faith that told a history of their ancestors and provided their descendants with a future. There are questions that I've been unable to answer in this presentation. It is unclear whether there is a difference um, in how Native communities in Idaho and Utah viewed Mormonism um, from how Native communities in Montana viewed it. And because of the limitations on the availability of church records, 
I've been unable to determine how many people exactly converted to Mormonism um, on Fort Peck, and I don't know much about the individuals. I'm hoping to be able to get access to those church records soon. But I think Frank Warner's mission represents an important first step into understanding the worldview of those American Indian men and women who did convert to Mormonism. Thank you.